I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about a small town in New Hampshire that dismantled its local government. And the influx of very aggressive bears that took advantage of the situation. Later in the episode, we're talking about the unhelpfulness of self-help advice in a global pandemic. This is The Politics of Everything. In the early 2000s, a group of libertarian activists started to look for a place where they could live out their ideals. They wanted to be free from taxes. They didn't want to have to deal with regulation. They wanted to get government out of their lives in general. The place they ended up was the small town of Grafton in New Hampshire, where they soon got to work slashing the municipal budget. It's maybe an understatement to say that the experiment didn't quite go to plan. And when the town was already struggling, they came up against a bigger problem. A group of very hungry, very aggressive bears wanted to move in too. Matt Hongoltz-Hetling has written the definitive account of Grafton's experiment. His book is called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, And we're very glad to have him here to tell us more about it. Hi, Matt. Hey, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start by asking you how you happened upon this experiment in the first place. Uh, I was working for my local newspaper, The Valley News, and the assignment was to go and interview a Vietnam War era veteran named Jessica Soule, who was having kind of a beef with the VA. So I drove to her home in Grafton, uh, and she had a bunch of cats. And she said, just kind of like very casually, oh, yeah, you know, I used to let them outdoors, uh, but that was before the bears came. <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of did like a double take. And she started to tell me about the bear behavior in her neighborhood and in her town. She had had two of her kittens snatched up by a bear in her sight and eaten. And she'd also had you know, a couple of other very harrowing bear encounters. And so I started asking other residents about bears. And over the course of time, slowly began to realize that there was something more than just uh, a nutty bear population in Grafton. You were based in Vermont, right? So presumably you're familiar with, you know, you might have a black bear encounter if you went out hiking or something. And usually what people argue is, you know, there's no reason to be scared of black bears. They're more scared of humans than we're scared of them. This was markedly different from ordinary (laughs) sort of interactions between black bears and humans in rural areas. The vast majority of the time that you encounter a bear in Grafton or elsewhere, you're not going to result in a bear attack. But what was happening in Grafton was that there were changes to the town culture that upped the risk. Changes to the town culture is a very funny way of putting it, because (laughs) 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 what happened was that uh, a bunch of libertarians decided to colonize it, basically, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, (laughs) The thing that Grafton is known for is that it was the site of a 2004 social experiment called the Freetown Project. Uh, So basically, uh, a loosely affiliated national group of libertarians, they thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we created a libertarian community that would kind of showcase and exemplify how great our values are that others could look to and emulate. They didn't have the money to build their own community, 
So they decided to take somebody else's community, <laughs> which was uh, <laughs> Grafton, New Hampshire. They first chose New Hampshire because it was most closely aligned with their ideals. They did a pretty extensive search and they landed on Grafton because one of the big selling points was that it had no zoning laws. Mm -hmm. So that meant that they could live in basically whatever sort of habitation they desired without having to worry about regulations that might make it safe or uh, not prone to fire hazards and, and things like that. So this would mean, you know, if you wanted to set up a tent city of survivalists, there's no one to say, that's not really up to code. For example. <laughs> um, but so what other features of the town made it attractive to them? I mean, if they had come into a place where there was a very active civic culture, presumably this would have been quite difficult. Right, right. They, they were told and appreciated that Grafton didn't have what they called like a busybody friendly atmosphere, uh, that you, you had a lot of fairly isolated people already kind of doing their own thing. Uh, so they thought they had a better chance of gaining greater ground politically than they would in a, a town that was maybe more tightly knit together. Right, because I think in the book you say it only had 800 registered voters and people were not that engaged in local elections. So what was the number of libertarians that came in? Uh, nobody really knows exactly how many libertarians came in. Uh, the town population increased by 200 during that period, but not necessarily everyone who came to town or who added to the population was a libertarian. They were not a large enough voting block to just kind of have carte blanche and, and work their will unimpeded. They did need some local allies to kind of pair up with. And for many measures, they found those allies. Um, well, so just give us a quick sketch of who are the leading lights of the Freetown Project. <laughs> well, uh, there were these kind of like founding fathers of the Freetown. And the most colorful of them was named Larry Pendarvis, except for nobody knew that because he was traveling <laughs> under the pseudonym Zach Bass. And Larry Pendarvis was... Yeah, just your run-of-the-mill uh, mail-order bride business owner. <laughs> uh, he had narrowly escaped convictions on child pornography charges, and he was a very incendiary extremist figure, even within the libertarian community. So he was asserting the right not just to, like, have junker vehicles on your front lawn, mm -hmm. but to be able to have bum fights, you know, where you would pay poor people to, to have like gladiator like combat mm -hmm. or consensual cannibalism or very extreme, uh, bizarre issues like that. My favorite quote from this was that he, he laments the victimless crime of consensual cannibalism. <laughs> this guy is really out there. What was the initial town and community response? Oh, people were pissed. Yo, <laughs> Uh, totally aside from the political reality of, of what a libertarian might believe in, a lot of longtime Graftonites hated the idea that a group of outsiders was going to come in with the stated intention of colonizing their town and turning it into something different. Mm -hmm. And so they had a big town meeting. They told the libertarians in no uncertain terms that they did not want them there. But the libertarians, when they, they kind of like regrouped after that drubbing, they said to themselves, well, you know, there's 800 people here and there were probably only 250 people at that meeting shouting at us. <laughs> so one might conclude that the majority of <laughs> residents do not mind our presence. <laughs> uh, 
And it was, you know, kind of wishful thinking, but uh, they were actually kind of right. Many of those people who had not come to the town meeting were actually voting with them. So what did they start to do? Like, what, how did they begin implementing their project? Uh, they were kind of a, a very disorganized bunch. So, yeah, one guy would get <laughs> a, a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so they, they successfully had uh, the streetlights shut off uh, because they didn't want to pay the electricity bill. <laughs> they failed to have uh, the town adopt a formal declaration that it would be a United Nations free zone. Um, <laughs> They strangled the municipal budget to the extent that the police chief had to go to a town meeting and say that he couldn't afford repairs to his cruiser. Uh, the planning board's budget was cut from like $4,000 to $50. You know, just nobody had any money to do anything. So one of the people they were influenced by is Ayn Rand. What were they exactly expecting to be the outcome of this project? Were they just looking to live in a kind of frontier style community and that would be the end of it? Or were they expecting some vibrant free market economy to (laughs) build on the sort of stripped down state that they had created? Well, you know, libertarians, yeah, they really feel like the free market is kind of like a Swiss army knife that can solve any societal problem. So a lot of them had big ideas about, hey, you know we're going to cut funding to our fire department, but we are going to have a, a privately run volunteer fire department. And we're going to open a restaurant that's not going to be regulated. And we're going to have like kind of a farmer's market type setup where people can have free exchange of goods and services that won't be regulated. But in the end, none of those aspirations got anywhere. Uh, each of those projects just kind of fizzled or never really got off the ground in the first place. It's funny because I think libertarianism, especially the brand of it you're describing, is very abstract, sort of theory-based and not based in any sort of like real-world data. But like um, (laughs) there's not really a free market solution to your town's streetlights getting shut off, right? (laughs) Like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny, uh, I, at one point I was tracking an internet forum discussion about the fire truck thing. And the discussion went kind of like, okay, yeah, so we've got this truck with a water tank on it. We want to be sure that that responds to any community fires. Uh, so instead of paying the town $40 in taxes annually towards its fire department, uh, let, let's just do like a subscription service for this. <laughs> and then somebody said, well, what if people don't buy the subscription? And so then, uh, like, the conversation got very, very quiet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so, I mean, as you say in the book, uh, robust Randian private sector fails to emerge to replace these services. <laughs> and that's one indication that maybe the project failed. But I think the thing that most people who have read your book may see as an indictment of this project is these black bears. So maybe we should we should usher them into the conversation. <laughs> Let's talk bears. When did they show up and why? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so picture Grafton now. It has a bunch of young white men living in ad hoc living situations in the woods. So there is a tent city. There are people living in yurts and little cabins and trailers. And each one of those places and people is managing its food and its food waste 
in its own way. And so they were kind of unintentionally, bears are smart, you know, bears, uh, they're problem solvers. Some people think that they're as smart as apes. They started to learn that every residence was kind of an interesting puzzle to prod at and to poke and to see if they could shake some food out of it. Another thing was that the residents themselves were never going to call fish and game or state wildlife authorities when they had a bear issue. Because that would be statism. That would be statism, yes. Uh, and so, you know, if you had a, a problematic bear, that wasn't tended to in, in any uh, organized fashion. And then number three, you had some residents who were so dead set against government recommendations on how to manage wildlife that they were intentionally feeding the bears. Um, so tell us about Donut Lady. <laughs> Donut Lady. That's my favorite uh, question you've asked this entire show, Laura. <laughs> it's the one we've been waiting for. <laughs> Donut Lady is a little old woman. She lives off in the woods uh, on a hilltop, and she started to feel sorry for the hungry-looking bears in her neighborhood. And out of the goodness of her heart, she started feeding them. And over time, this progressed into a twice-daily ritual where she would kind of totter out into her backyard with two buckets of grain filled to the brim with piles of donuts on top. And waiting for her in her backyard would be a pack of bears. They, they call a group of bears a sleuth. This was a, like two sleuths of bears, let's say. <laughs> so this part of the book kind of reminded me of that Werner Herzog movie, Grizzly Man, um, where <laughs> Timothy Treadwell, he believes he can befriend the grizzly bears and Donut Lady seems to be kind of Grafton's answer to Timothy Treadwell, except that that story ends tragically with his death whereas she just inflicted all this suffering on her neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one of her neighbors, who also went by a pseudonym by choice, called Beretta, she became terrified of the bears. And so Did you say her Beretta? Neighbor, Beretta. Uh, so like after, uh, after yeah, a she, gun? She, she kept right? her Beretta in her yeah. umbrella stand in, in the manner of an Agatha Christie novel heroine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, she began to kind of secretly plot how she could kill these bears. And she kind of had a dream <laughs> of having like a bearskin rug. Uh, and so I, I don't want to spoil the ending, but one of those two women winds up very unhappy and the other one also winds up unhappy. <laughs> so did anyone just approach Donut Lady and say, you know, it would really help me out if you stop feeding the bears? Donut Lady was not the only person feeding bears in town. She was just, you know, the, the only one who was kind enough to interview with me about it. But to suggest that your neighbor should stop feeding bears, for most people, would have smacked of busybody, <laughs> right. uh, overbearing neighborliness. What she does on uh, her property yeah. is her, that's her right. <laughs> that, that is the libertarian credo, yeah. Like, you own that bear while it's on your land. And once it leaves your land, <laughs> it's not your problem. So they couldn't ask each other not to feed the bears. They couldn't ask each other to start dealing with the garbage in a more responsible way. Uh, what did they do? So each person and encampment dealt with bears in their own way. Some people were putting cayenne pepper in with their food garbage so that the bears would inhale it and, and be disgusted and, and sneeze and run away. Other people were actually setting booby traps for the bears involving 
uh, you have boards full of spikes uh, or using electric fences. And ironically, the solution for some of the people who had come to Grafton seeking freedom was to kind of barricade themselves in. So, you know, you had people like Beretta and uh, Jessica Soul who were essentially sequestered in their homes and uh, the survivalists of Tent City, they eventually decide to build a wall so that they're in like a little like fortified keep in the forest to keep the bears out. And if that's not free living, I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) The behavior of the people in this town was exceptional and in many ways extreme. But Mm -hmm. some aspects of the problem they have here seem to have plenty in common with the rest of America, even on the small level of this bear problem, right? Because it's not entirely unique to Grafton. And it seems like there were other factors here beyond just the behavior of the residents. For instance, climate change, it's been suggested maybe one reason these bears were acting differently. Mm-hmm. How much do you think that part of the story connects with this smaller microcosm that you looked at? What I've kind of come to realize in terms of like applicability to the broader picture is that the kind of mainstream conservative movement right now seems to have abandoned a lot of its traditional principles in favor of you know, in one word, freedom, in the way that a teenager might, might feel very strongly that they just, they just want to do what they want to do. If that impulse and that drive toward unfettered freedom, unbalanced by civic responsibility, were to gain free reign in America, we might get something very like we saw in Grafton, which is, you know, they had their first murder in a living memory, uh, the number of sex offenders went up, recycling rates went down, neighbor complaints skyrocketed, reported drug use went up. All of these things that we sometimes forget, we come together to solve as a society. Yeah, I think the right-wing and libertarian conception of freedom, it's a very limited definition. I would consider myself less free personally if I couldn't walk down a well-lit street at night and also I was in danger of bear attacks. I would consider that an infringement on my freedom. (laughs) Um, But I guess what I'm curious about is, do you think the people involved in this experiment, do you think they took away any lesson like that from this whole thing? No, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, to, to have someone try to do something on behalf of their philosophy of life and to have that not pan out... Probably the last conclusion that you want to draw is that your philosophy of life is flawed, right? (laughs) They still think that this is the way to go. And in fact, you know, what actually killed the Freetown Project was something called the Free State Project, which was a separate but very similarly minded project that was ramped up on the state scale. So In 2016, roughly 16,000 libertarians pledged to come to the state of New Hampshire and begin altering it on a statewide level. And they are making progress toward those goals as we speak. I was curious whether there was something about libertarianism that attracted you to the story. Because I know a lot of people at some early point in their life may have gone through an Ayn Rand phase. (laughs) Well, you know, in my young 20s, I did read Atlas Shrugged, but I really came to my political positions kind of backwards. Like I was really into science. And so I started to look at politics through the prism of science. 
And there's really not a lot of scientific support for a libertarian, idyllic community. But that being said, yeah, if I can say something nice about libertarians, right? Uh, <laughs> these are uh, people who, in many ways, have very uh, high-minded, principled, ideological stances on a lot of issues. And sometimes that falls the liberal way. They, they were early proponents of gay marriage and decriminalization of marijuana. And so I do think that it's important to have a voice in American politics and American discourse kind of advocating for freedom, because that is a, an important and fundamental American value. But God, I would never want to live in a libertarian society <laughs> uh, and have my, my health care, education, climate change solved with the free market or, or anything like that. Well, thank you very much for talking with us, Matt. Matthew Hongoltz-Hetling's book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. It's reviewed by Patrick Blanchfield in the new issue of The New Republic, and the book is out now. After a short break, we'll be back to talk to the writer Colette Shade about the trouble with self-help in a national emergency. The election is in days. We've been in a global pandemic for most of the year. The global economy is teetering, and people are feeling a little stressed out. Pandemic anxiety is making us sleepless, forgetful, and angry, reads one Washington Post headline. The New York Times warns, you may be suffering from election stress disorder. What to do when pandemic stress meets seasonal depression, asks the Oregonian. But can the answer of how to cope with these unprecedented crises possibly be found in a newspaper article? We're joined now by Colette Shade, a writer and master's student at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Colette recently wrote for The New Republic about what's wrong with self-help tips when society is falling apart. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I think we're all familiar with this genre of story, but what are some of the self-help tips that you came across for coping with society falling apart? Well, one of the self-help tips I cite in the article is wearing your work clothes to help you focus during work. And another one is sexting to make up for the fact that if you're single, it's not as safe to have sex anymore. Right. That piece of advice was published a few months ago, right? And during the sort of peak of the lockdown period on the East Coast, at least. But it seems just incredibly inadequate to the problem as you write. Yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with sexting, but I haven't seen any research to support it being a substitute for human touch. And that gets at the larger problem that you write about. I think of it as sort of personalizing a societal problem, but uh, taking these symptoms of poor mental health and trying to come up with individual solutions. And what you suggest is that individual solutions are not actually what we need, correct? So if you've lost your job, you're going to be stressed out. You're going to have a lot of cortisol coursing through your blood. And cortisol has been found to have all kinds of negative impacts on your mental health, especially on your ability to remember things and your ability to concentrate. And this idea that we can simply deal with this mass stressor on an individual basis 
or that we can even expect people to deal with something as dire as that with cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapy that provides coping strategies, it's just not up to the task. And I want to be very clear here that I'm an advocate for therapy. I'm an advocate for medication. I would not be going to school to become a therapist if I did not believe it worked. But it's just not up to the task of the enormity of the problems we're facing right now. Well, right, exactly. Like, my wife and I both have been working from home since March, and we have a very young child who needs a lot of attention, which causes a lot of anxiety. And I could treat my anxiety with medication or with cognitive behavioral therapy, but what would fix my anxiety would be for the pandemic to go away so that he can go to school, right? That would actually, right. that, would, that would cure it. <laughs> There's this concept called social determinants of health that I think is very useful for understanding what's going on here. Now, there's been a great deal of research into this concept as it applies to a number of physiological conditions such as asthma and diabetes. So for example, type 2 diabetes tends to affect poor people in the U.S. disproportionately. Now, if we were to approach this without looking from a structural perspective, we would just say, okay, well, let's make sure that everybody with type 2 diabetes can get the care that they need to manage their condition. But when you look using a social determinants of health perspective, what you are doing is looking at, well, okay, why do all of these people have type 2 diabetes? And what researchers and doctors have found is that it's because poor people in the U.S., they cannot afford healthy food. They don't have the time or the money to exercise or take care of their bodies. And so if you are looking at this structural cause of diabetes, you say, okay, well, how do we eliminate poverty? And that will have an impact on diabetes. So the social determinants of health approach that you're talking about is not radical or new. As far as I'm aware, it is actually something that's factored into many other countries thinking on healthcare, right? Like if you have yes. a nationalized health service the way Britain does, the government also has an incentive to make sure that the population is healthier in the first place so that the national health service doesn't have to pay more for treatment for more cases of type 2 diabetes. It actually makes much more sense to try and make sure that people don't develop type 2 diabetes on the same levels. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's interesting. If you organize a society such that the state itself has an interest in the populace being healthy physically and mentally, you'll have a different outcome than you do here, where it's sort of disparate private actors who have a profit motive. I think that's right. But something I, I noted in these self-help stories that you highlighted is that it does seem like a lot of this advice is actually just geared towards helping you overcome your anxiety and stress to continue to be an efficient employee. Do you think that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Well, so I have a question there because that one self-help hack, I'm embarrassed to admit, is something that I have been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. I thought as soon as we were working from home, like, it's going to be great because I love to work in bed. I was going to wear sweats every day. And after about two weeks, I was just like, you know, I've got, I've got to wear real clothes. I need to sit at a table. This just isn't going to work otherwise. And I guess that is a self-help hack, right? Yeah. 
So to some extent, these hacks have some value because it could be even worse without them. I guess the question is, what is the right place for this kind of advice? Do you also think that there might be a danger that they're a distraction from taking larger action? I think if these hacks are just about, okay, put on your work dress and sit at your home office, even though your kid's crying in the background, and never mind that you know people who are in the hospital with COVID, just get back to work. If that's the purpose, then then it's bad. But if it's to help you cope and get to a point where you're able to organize to bring about change in whatever way you can, in that case, they wouldn't be a distraction. So if wearing a shirt and, you know, real clothes puts you in a position to campaign for Medicare for all, then <laughs> exactly go with the self-help hack. <laughs> but so Colette, what you're basically advocating here as the medicine at least in the interim, is political action. Can you tell us what kinds of policies you think people should channel their energies towards? Well, in the short term, we need a serious COVID relief package that gives unconditional, not means-tested support to everybody, just across the board, just cutting checks so that people can live without worrying about losing their jobs or being evicted. We need a moratorium on rent, moratorium on evictions. And then in the more medium term, we need to distribute wealth and we need to distribute decision-making power more democratically. You know, you look at these surveys that are released, I feel like every year that say the happiest countries are always the Nordic social democracies. Like it seems like there's actually evidence in favor of that approach, right? Absolutely. There are two British epidemiologists who study the health effects of inequality, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson. And what they've found is that inequality has serious mental health impacts, both at the top and at the bottom of the hierarchy. It's better for your brain to live in a more equal country. You're just not as anxious all the time. Sounds lovely. (laughs) So... It sounds like what you're proposing is that we need a different definition of mental health. I think the way mental health is popularly understood is as solely an issue of brain chemistry. We're just brains in vats squirting out chemicals. But I want to expand mental health to look at why are we squirting out these chemicals? Because we're not brains in vats. We're brains inside bodies that are constantly interacting with other bodies, with money and politics in this incredibly complex society. And it does us a disservice not to evaluate all of that when we're talking about someone's mental well-being. I will just tell my therapist that I need to live in a social democracy and that will solve everything. I've told mine that so many times. <laughs> Same. <laughs> that had this started. <laughs> well, you can find Colette's article, Self-Help Hacks at the End of the World on TNR.com. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. 
We want to give a special thanks to our terrific audio engineer, Mark Yoshizumi, who will be leaving us after this episode. Mark has shepherded us through so many trying circumstances and rescued hours of sketchy tape. We miss his patience and his expertise. Thanks for everything, Mark. This is the politics of everything. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.